Hey friends, welcome to RUF. Hey, so if, if you've been with us, we're uh, working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and tonight we're looking at Jesus and our spiritual anxiety, and I'm going to explain that in a second. I'm going to read our text first. We're in Matthew 6, um, looking at verses 19 to 34. And I'm calling it spiritual anxiety because I know that uh, clinical anxiety is a real thing, and I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is speaking to here. I think it's more uh, spiritual anxiety in the sense of a general anxiety we can feel about ourselves, about our relationship with others, about our life in this fallen world. And um, yeah, let's read the passage first, and we'll dive into, I think, what Jesus has for us thinking about um, our spiritual anxiety in that way. So here's what Jesus says, Matthew 6, starting verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let me pray for us, and I just kind of want to dive into what Jesus has for us tonight. Let's pray first. Our Lord, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, we thank you that you you know our anxious hearts, Uh, Lord, and yet you speak um, so directly to them. Lord, I I pray for myself and for my friends tonight that, that we would find our rest, that we would find our peace, And that we would find the life and life abundant in you. Lord, it's already ours. If we are in Christ, if we are in you, um, we have these things. And yet, Lord, you know how hard it is for us to believe. How hard it is for us to rest. How hard it is for us to see you and your kingdom um, as our great treasure. So, Lord, would you move by your spirit in us tonight? Give us the the word that we need, whether it be a word of encouragement, whether it be a word of conviction. We trust that to you. And would you do your work in us tonight, we pray. We pray these things for Christ in your name. Amen. So, you know, sometimes you just, there's a phrase that sort of comes along your way that just sort of lands on you in some kind of way. 
And that happened for me just the other day where I was, uh, Tish Warren, she's uh, an author that I like a lot. She wrote Liturgy of the Ordinary. But she had this line where she was talking about how in a culture where we can be so not just anxious, but we can be, like we talked last week, so kind of at enmity with each other. She had this line where she said the old Anglican, she's an Anglican, used to say and used to pray for mellowness of the soul. Mellowness of the soul. And I think that's what Jesus has for us tonight, is mellowness of the soul. In other words, what does it take for us as, as those who belong to Jesus uh, or those who are exploring what life with Christ is like, what does it look like for us to be truly not anxious? Uh, if you think about people, I've heard it described this way, who have a non-anxious presence, I think you know what I mean. Like think about your favorite grandmother and going to her house and hopefully she loved you well and hopefully being in her presence, was a, it was a non-anxious presence, maybe for you. Both of my grandmothers were like that. And Jesus, of course, we know his presence is a non-anxious presence. So what does it look like for us to not be anxious in our life with him? And again, not speaking of clinical anxiety, that's something I know well. My wife certainly struggles with it, and counseling and medicine are extremely help, helpful. Not so much speaking to that, but speaking more to that anxiety of the soul that we so often just in this life experience for all kinds of reasons that Jesus names. So I think there are four things that Jesus has for us if we're going to kind of enter into this non-anxious life with him, where we really are seeking his kingdom and seeking its righteousness first and finding our life, the whole of our life, the hope of our life in him I think four things have to happen. Here's the first. We have to have a treasure that can't be touched. Uh, Let's just do them all there. First, we have to have a treasure that can't be touched. Second, we have to have eyes to truly see. Third, we have to have a Lord who loves us. And then lastly, we have to have an identity that's secure. So first, a treasure that can't be touched. The reality that Jesus names is something I think that's pretty simple on on the face of it. And it's simply this, that we, our hearts are made to treasure something. And our, quite honestly, our struggle, even as Christians, is we treasure the wrong things. Uh, the other way that we often talk about this in RUF is we have idols, right? We're, we're meant, we're made to worship and love God with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strengths. And what happens in the breakdown of what it means to be a sinner is we transfer that worship to created things. And we can worship all kinds of things. I like the way this one guy, he's a commentator, his name is Frederick Dale Brenner. Here's how he says it, because he transfer, he, he uses the word goals, Um, Listen to what he says, and I'll explain it. He says like this. He says, where your goal is, think about your goals. Where your goal is, it's on your handout. Where your goal, I'm sorry, this is, let's keep going. Where your goal is, there will your heart be. If one's goal is to impress others by acquiring personal treasures and fame or fortune, one's center of gravity will always be people and their admiration. A person's goals are in fact very often a person's gods. The Old Testament's thou shalt have no other gods before me is brought closer home by Jesus. Thou shalt have no other goals before me. Ask a person's goals and you will find a person's gods. What are your goals? Um, where your goals is, that's not right. Where your goals are, are so often where your treasure is, therefore, what your God really is, whether that goal be what he names to be admired by others, whether that goal be to look a certain way, whether that goal be to have a certain amount of money in your account, whether that goal be to get a certain sort of uh, internship or job or career, where our goals are, so often we find our gods. So the question for us is, what, what does your heart treasure? What are your goals? Um, here's a moment, I've shared this before, but I 
you know, I share things and I don't remember when I shared them. But we had this moment, this is what I was thinking of. We had this moment, we were a young family. I think Eloise had just been born. We had four kids. Um, and so it was like, they were all little. And we went with my mom to, a, to Pauly's Island. We love going to the beach. Uh, so we went for a week, Pauly's Island, my, this house that my mom had a connection to. And as we were packing up to like take our little family and our sad little minivan home, all minivans are sad, except on the inside. They're amazing on the inside, but just still it feels sad to drive them. But we're, we're driving out, and as we're like driving out, there's this family with a U-Haul that's literally the same stage as us. Like they, the parents look our age, the kids look our kids' ages. And it's clear they're like moving into their, what I assume was their new vacation house. And it was this, you have to, we were early in ministry. Uh, my wife, she's, she, she wouldn't be ashamed. I don't think she'd be ashamed for me to say this. She was literally voted uh, most likely to marry rich. <laughs> and she married me, uh, a pastor. And we're like driving and kind of looking at this family. And it was a moment where we both sort of named it out loud like, this is never going to be us. Like, we're never going to own a, and this was even a second row house. We're never going to own even a, a second row house in Polly's Island. And it was a moment for really, truly, like, it wasn't a Jesus juke moment. It was a moment where we're like, what, does our heart, what, what do our hearts truly treasure? Um, comfort's up there for me. And it was one of those moments of, this is never going to be us. And yet, in a totally non-Jesus way, I think Alyssa said, either Alyssa or I said something like, and Jesus says to us, I'm going, I'm going before you to prepare a mansion. A life with him eternally that is far better than a second row Pauly's beach house. So first, we have to have a, and nothing can touch that. Who knows, you know, that beach house is at least old now, you know, at least needs some updating. Um, but what Jesus is preparing for us in life with him eternally can never be touched. So what a treasure that can't be touched first. But then second, we also need eyes to see. And here's where Jesus, he kind of talks about, right? He talks about, does that weird thing of light and dark and what do our eyes see and what they don't see. And I think what he's driving at is the, the trouble that we find when it comes to what we treasure is we're often blind to what we treasure. It's hard for us often to see our own idols. And we're also often blind to the true riches and resources that are ours in Christ. We often don't have eyes to see. Uh, you can think about it like this. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 119 says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to gain. Turn my eyes from looking at vanities and give me life in your ways. And we're often blind to the life that is ours in Christ. Um, I think about that scene, if you know it, from Second Kings chapter 6, where Elisha's with his servants. They're about to go to battle, and he's, he's looking at like, He's not seeing, it's not adding up to him, the amount of people that are with them versus the amount of the army they're facing. And there's that moment in that text, if you, if you remember it, where Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes to see. And the angel opens his eyes to see and his chariots and tons of, of, peop, of angels, um, just a, a sea of, of God's army that is going to fight for them. And I think so often in my own life, I don't know about you, but this is what I need. I need the Lord to open my eyes to what is already mine in Christ. I need him to open my eyes to not just who Jesus is to me, but what he's done for me. 
um, in the resources that are mine and him. Um, I, I think it's interesting. There was a, I was watching this interview with Tim Keller just today, and he's, he's dying of cancer. And he was doing this interview with a guy, Russell Moore, that I like to follow. And, and Russell Moore asked him, you know, what would you say to this generation of young Christians who are feeling not just anxious because of COVID, but they look at the state of the church and all that's coming out, and they're anxious about the future of what it means to be a Christian. And Keller, in this beautiful way, says, here's the sort of simple truth that grounds me, even in my story of dying well. And he says, it's not that I don't have moments where I weep. He's like, my, my wife Kathy and I were weeping last night. But he said, if it's true that Jesus really is risen, which is what we just celebrated, right? Just Sunday. If it's true that Jesus really did raise again from the dead, then it's true for us that truly he is making all things new. Not just you and me, but this entire world. And what we have in him, in the hope of his resurrection, is a world that is ours in him that is entirely being made new. But do we have eyes to see? Do you have eyes to see right now, maybe you're in a hard season of life and you don't know what the Lord is doing and that's so often how life goes. And if you've prayed maybe for eyes to see, even if you can't see what the Lord is doing, I love that old Spurgeon line that there are moments where we, even when we cannot trace his hand, we can still trust his heart and we need eyes to see why it is that we can trust his heart. We need eyes to see how it is that we can trust who it is he is to us. So first, we need a treasure that can't be touched. Second, we need eyes to see that we can't give ourselves. And then third, we need a Lord who loves us. If you look at verse 24, it's what Jesus says. You can't have two lords. You can't serve two masters. And his specific example is God and money. If I learned anything from watching HBO's The Wire, it's that you always got to follow the money. And that's true even in the Christian life. You got to follow the money because money is such a deal, even, not even, even especially often for us as Christians. But the, the simple principle is we can't have two lords. And the reality is that the, tr- the idols that capture and captivate our hearts are not good lords. They don't serve us well. When you think about watching Jesus, our Lord, in the upper room, in his last meal with the disciples, what, what kind of Lord is he? In that moment, as he knows he's about to go to his own death for them... What is Jesus doing? We talked about this, right? Last week, Jesus is kneeling and he's serving. He's the kind of Lord who loves us well. He's the kind of Lord who has given himself truly his life for our life, his death for our death. And the reality is we still go after other lords. And even when we know from our own experience that they don't serve us well, there's still some spiritual power that they often hold. Like I know in my own story, me seeking the approval of men does not typically go well. It makes me either do dumb or sinful things. And even when I have it, it doesn't truly satisfy me. I love, again, I'm not going to quote Keller this whole thing, but I love the way that Keller will say it. When you find Jesus, what do you find? You find in him a Lord that will truly fulfill you. And you find in him, when you fail him, a Lord that will truly forgive you, which is not true of our idols. It's not true of the other lords we seek. Um, so there's a speech. One of my favorite writers is a guy named David Foster Wallace. This is in your handout. And years ago, like 20 years ago, he gave this commencement speech at Kenyon College. And it's fascinating. David Foster Wallace was nothing close to a Christian. And yet sometimes just in his writing and especially in the speech, he just nailed things. He saw things. He got truth. We call that common grace. And here's what he says about this idea of 
having a Lord who loves you versus a Lord who doesn't. Here's what he said. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing up, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, being in control. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power, ever more control over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And here's what he says. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that's what you're doing. Or to quote, if you're a Bob Dylan person, to quote Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. Maybe the devil, it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. And the question is, who is it that you're serving? Who is your Lord? I love that scene. I think about that scene. Hagar, Abram's, you know, the other woman. And Abram and Sarah are in their desperation of not knowing if God will meet them and provide. You know, he sleeps with her. She has the child. Sarah hates her, sends her away. Remember that scene where she's in the wilderness? And she doesn't know where to go. Her resources, her, her provision has been robbed from her. And the angel of the Lord shows up in this incredible way and speaks to her and ministers to her. And she says, and it's a beautiful, almost throwaway line. She says, truly, you are a God who sees. And what she's saying is, you are a Lord who loves me. Even when my like, true Lord, Abraham, didn't. You're the kind of Lord. He's the kind of Lord who sees us and loves us. So first, a treasure that can't be touched. Second, eyes to see. Third, a Lord who loves us. And then the last thing Jesus has for us is an identity that's secure. I'm going to go a little bit. I'm going to go a little bit like here's what struck me about what Jesus starts to say about food and drink and clothes. He says so much about clothes. As, as someone who likes clothes like as someone who like I, I had a guy one time when I was in, at a this was one of the most embarrassing moments of my life I was at Georgia Southern a campus minister and we had become Facebook friends he was moving into town he was a new crew guy and we were meeting at McAllister's and I was in like I mean my I've had so many phases in my life I don't know if you relate to this but like I had a, a wannabe skater phase in middle school where I wore the baggy jeans and the vans and the airwalks and like had a skateboard that I never that I never once I mean, I tried to ride it. Uh, You know, I had before that a sort of, I guess you would just, uh, I don't know what you would call it. Like, I was really into early 90s uh, just rap. And so crisscross was a thing, and they would wear these jerseys, baseball jerseys, backwards. Like, I did that for a while. Uh, Then I was like, then I had my boring Christian normie phase where I just wore Eddie Bauer, which was really interesting because it was just like pleated khakis and like a T-shirt with some just like Nikes. Uh, then I got into college and I was like, oh, preps are the thing, right? I did a frat and I was like, preppy is cool. And I've got the official preppy handbook and I like literally modeled my whole wardrobe after this handbook, which is ridiculous. 
then I got to Georgia Southern, and I was like, I don't know. I became a cardigan guy for a while. I was like, this seems cool. I'm just going to wear cardigans all the time. And looking back, I was like, no. I, uh, I did all things you know, with my hair. Like I tried to do the spiky up thing. It was terrible. I tried to do the swoop thing. It was terrible because I'm balding. I tried to do all kinds of things. And it's so interesting to me that Jesus kind of lands in on this. Because I think here's the way I would say it in my own life, and I, I'm curious how it is for you, but so much of that's about identity. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, when he's talking about our anxiety, he really hones in on two things. Fundamental security, food and drink, and I think fundamental identity, clothes, what we wear. Who we, which I think is how we try to tell the world who we are. And he says, don't worry about it. And I think what he's saying to you and me is, I'm your life. And that means two things. That means you can trust not that I'm not going to allow hard things into your life, but that I'm always going to take care of you. I used to have a professor in seminary. His wife would say, the Lord promises daily bread, not daily steak, which I was like, okay, good point. And she's like, the Lord has never failed to provide for us, even maybe especially in the seasons of darkness and hardness. But I think maybe the word that you and I need even more in this moment is, but also our identity. That Jesus is saying to you, part of what it means to belong to him, and actually part of the strange cure for your anxiety, is this idea of refusing to let anything other than Jesus define you and be your identity. Um, And he really, I think, nails it in that way to us. And so the question for us is, you know, part of our anxiety is it often can be security or need for control, but it so often can be our identity, who we think we should be, and the anxiety that that can bring. Um, I love the way that Ed Welch says it. He's a counselor that I like. He says it like this. He said, do you see any of these things in your life? He's talking about Jesus and, and the things that we feel insecure about. And he says, if you made someone besides God the center of your life and you lose him or her, you will feel isolated and without purpose. Can you see how this can give way to anxiety? You made another person your reason for living, and now, without him or her, you feel hopeless and unable to go on. You may not realize it, but the Bible tells us, tells us that this is idol worship. You are worshiping what God created instead of him. If you feel like you failed in the eyes of other people, your success and the opinions of others is of critical importance, you can slip into anxiety. Can you see the spiritual roots? Your success and the opinion of others have become your gods, and they are more important to you than serving Christ. I'll close with these two things. One is, this is a little simple illustration that I've always loved. The way that Jesus frames it and says, look at the birds of the air. Do they worry? Do they have anxious presence? And so there's this old sort of illustration that goes like this. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. What I want you to see, this is maybe the main thing I want you to see. Think about it like this. What does Jesus treasure? What is the treasure for Jesus? What is the thing that he, I'm going to say it like this, worries the most about? And the answer is you and me. Jesus did what he did, what we just celebrated on Easter, because he cares for you. That's what Peter says, cast your anxiety on the Lord. Why? 
because he cares for you. Can I say it like this? Because you are his treasure. Because you are such his treasure that he left his father's throne above, emptied himself of all but love, and he gave himself for you and for me because he treasured you and me. We sing it like this, how deep the father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son. And here's how we sing it, to make a wretch like you and me. Those who go after other treasures, those who are so blind, those who, who look to the yoke of other lords, those who are so anxious about our identity, forgetting what is ours in Christ, to make a wretch his treasure. Uh, I'll close with this. So I'm sure I've shared this before, but gosh, it's one of my favorites. So uh, Antique Roadshow, you don't, if you know what that is, man, you're incredible. Uh, PBS, it's a PBS show, kind of an oldie but goodie. I can't say I'm like a super into the show, but I am super into this one episode. And it's the episode of a guy named, with a guy named Ted, Ted Kuntz. Ted Kuntz shows up. He's, a, he's very blue collar. You can tell he's an older man, probably in his 70s at this point. He comes in and he, he looks like life has been hard on him. But he brings in this Navajo blanket. And if you know how the show works, Antique Roadshow, the way the show works is people who think they might have something of some value bring that thing to be assessed, and the people of the show that make Antique Roadshow the, just the treasure that it is, tell that person what it's worth. So, like, this episode is amazing. You should definitely look up this scene on YouTube. Ted brings in this Navajo blanket, and he says, it's been in my family for years. You know, we just kind of had it. We don't know much about it. We just had it on the back of our, like, you know, lazy boy in the house. It's been passed down through my parents and now me and we're just kind of curious what it's worth. And you can watch the guy who's assessing it just like, I mean, you can watch him as he's looking at this blanket just start to kind of like get giddy. The way it unfolds is he says, Ted, do you realize this is not just a Navajo blanket? This is actually a chief's blanket, which is like, you can tell by the stripes, that's really uh, very valuable. And he says, Ted, also, I don't know if you know this, but there's a, with this particular blanket, I can't remember how the guy knows this, but he says it's got this connection to Kit Carson, who's sort of Hollywood, you know, sort of, there was some, you know, famous people who had been tied to it. So he says, that's going to add value. And he looks at Ted and he says, Ted, do you have any guess what this blanket is worth? And Ted's like, it's just an old blanket in my house. And he says, Ted, buckle yourself. This blanket is worth nearly a million dollars. And it's a beautiful moment because Ted and he just this old man just starts weeping I mean he just starts wiping tears away and he says through tears he says I had no idea I had no idea this is this changes everything for my family and when I watch that I think this is what Jesus is getting at to us do you have any idea the treasures that are yours in Christ it changes everything. It changes everything. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you became poor, that we might become rich in you. Lord, I don't know. I, I know something of the anxieties in my own heart that I carry daily. And Lord, would you help me, help us to cast them on you who so cares for us. Lord, would we make us like the sparrows who live life with joyful freedom because we know that we so firmly and securely belong forever to you. You alone can do this in our hearts, and Lord, would you do it? Whatever anxieties we are feeling and carrying, and Lord, you know well how hard and burdensome they can be. Would you 
free us from them by your great love and care for us. And Lord, would you help us to do it again and again and again and again. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Please stand and sing our doxology with us.